Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. It's Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. If you want to follow along in the Pew Bible, you'll find that on page 803. Romans 12 and verse 1. Hear now the Word of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as, living, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace of God given to me, I say to everyone among you, do not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion with our faith, if service, then in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in his generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this time to consider your word this morning and an opportunity to gather together on this cold January morning, this first Sunday of the year, that we may set our hearts and our minds upon you through your word. And so we ask you and we appeal to you out of your great kindness and love for us, will you come and help us to understand who you are and how you would have us to live that we might find the joy that is, that is located in obedience and submission to a good and gracious God and that you in turn might be glorified by the passionate submission of your willing children. And so help us this morning. We pray, please, Spirit of God, come and help us that we might find great delight in your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, I hope you had a good Christmas. Everybody have a good Christmas. Um, of course, the choir uh, reminded us of Christmas. Thank you very much, choir, this morning. We have still a little Christmas left, and um, we rejoice in Christmas. I certainly I love the Christmas season. It's a great uh, joy for me. I very much enjoy uh, giving gifts, especially now that we have children. It, it's always uh, a lot of fun when Allegra and I decide uh, what gifts to give our children, and, and there always seem to be more under the tree than uh, Allegra originally agreed to. Um, I like to, to spoil my kids. I've, uh, in fact, we have an a, agreement in my house with my children, and we tell them this often, that we will spoil you as long as you don't act spoiled. And then once you act, start acting spoiled, then the spoiling ends. And so uh, they're very good at that. They love to give gifts. They get very excited, not just in receiving gifts, but seeing what their siblings got. And we all got good. I got a cheese grater, so I was pretty excited about that. And um, so um, praise the Lord for, for that gift. And the kids give gifts to each other. And it's just a wonderful time for us. And we had a, a great delight. In fact, my kids like to give gifts kind of year-round uh, gift givers. So often when I come home from uh, work, I'll come into the house 
house and many times they'll have gifts to present to me and they'll, they'll have pictures in which they have drawn and, and many of you parents understand this and experience this and you, they just give you all these pictures. I don't know if your kids make you guess what they drew. Uh, my kids kind of like to, me to guess and you think it's a dinosaur but no, it's mommy and it gets all confusing. Um, and, and, but they, they bring these gifts to us and, and when you have these gifts and the kids give them to you, um, they, of course, want you to enjoy them and, and delight in them, don't, don't they? Uh, and we used to put ours on the refrigerator. We don't do that anymore. We can't find magnets powerful enough to keep the six inches of uh, paper on the refrigerator. In fact, I try to give them to the elders, but uh, they're not so interested in doing that for some reason. They want daddy to have them. They want daddy to use them. They want daddy to enjoy them. And that's, I think, the point of gifts, isn't it? Is that when you give something to someone, you want them to, to delight in it. And if they don't, it kind of hurts your feelings. So if you buy your, your wife flowers, you, you expect her to put it in a vase on, on a table and display it. You don't expect her to put it in the closet or on a shelf somewhere unless you're in more trouble than you thought. Right? Right? You want them to find ho- uh, happiness in it and delight. And I, I think gifts are meant to be displayed. They're meant to be put to use. In fact, on Christmas afternoon, I went right in that kitchen and I started grating some cheese. Um, and I just had a great time and, and uh, using the gift. I wanted her to see my delight in it. Well, I wonder if the same is true for God. I wonder if God, our Father, finds delight when His children, in which He has gifted, use the gifts in which He has given them. Or, contrary, I wonder if He feels sorrow or, or grief when He has given us gifts and He sees them children put them on a shelf or a closet or neglect them. I do want to tell you this morning from God's Word that God has gifted you. You notice that in verse 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. If you are a follower of Christ, God has gifted you. And therefore, what should you do? You read on in verse 6. He says, let us use them. See, the, the church is gifted. You, all of you are gifted. And what's interesting about these gifts, as we'll see in a moment, is that they don't terminate on you. They don't center on you, but rather you're to use them in other people's lives. You're to use them for the church. And so on this first Sunday of 2014, I, I want to talk to you a little bit about the church. Uh, we're just kind of uh, jumped, I know, right here in Romans 12. We haven't been studying Romans, but I love this passage, and I think it's very helpful for us to think about this body of Christ to which we belong. I, I want to do that because I think there's um, a great disregard for the church, especially in American Christianity. I read this week that there are 23 million Americans who claim to be evangelical Christians and yet do not identify with a local church. In fact, it, it almost seems popular today in, in our day for Christians to to even mock the church, to make fun of the church, to, to say things like, I love Jesus, I just can't stand the church. Well, the only problem with that is that it's sinful. And I believe it's terribly offensive to God. I mean, could you, could you imagine if I walked up to you and, and said, you know, I, I really love you. I mean, I just think you're great and, I, and I, I'm just so glad you're in my life. But I have to be honest, I can't stand your wife. Right? Would you think that... Take that as a compliment. Would you think, wow, he must really be fond of me? No, you'd punch me in the head. I wonder if Jesus wants to punch us in the head sometimes as we slam his bride. Or likewise, the church, as we see even in our text, is described as the body of Christ. What if my wife approached me and said, Stephen, I, I really love you, and I, I, I mean, I'm just so glad you're my husband, and I, and, I, and I find great delight in you, but I have to be honest, I can't stand your body. I mean, what's not to like, obviously? 
But that was, I wouldn't think, well, wow, I'm really built up by her. That'd be a terrible insult, wouldn't it? This is how people treat the body of Christ and the body of Christ. And I'm aware, by the way, that many people have been hurt by the church and the shallowness and the hypocrisy and the superficial natures that sometimes the church exhibits. I don't want to minimize the pain in which the church has caused. But to disregard it would be to disregard the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. I, I moreover want to talk to you about the church, not just because there's a disregard to the church. I think there's a confusion about the church. The, the, as to actually what the church is. The, the church is not you and a couple buddies at Starbucks. Maybe even if you have your Bible open. That is not the church. The church is you not staying home and watching a preacher on television. That is not the church. The church is not a building. And we use this term. We use the term church uh, inappropriately, I think, all the time. I do it all the time. This is one of the things I'm going to work on this year. And, and I'm going to help you work on it, too. So if I correct you, it's out of love. But we, this is not the church. This is a building. You are the church. You don't go to church. We don't think what we say, what time is church? Or when is church over? Or did you like church? All those is an inappropriate use of the church. Church is not something we go to. It's not something that begins and ends. It's 24-7. You are the church. And the next time you walk by or drive by a church building and you say, Wow, that is a beautiful church. There better be people standing outside, right? Because that is the church. You're the church. I, I do this all the time. And what church do you go to? Or, or where is your church? Well, my church is all over Loudoun County. Because this is the church. We all are. I think there's terrible confusion there. That church is people sharing life together, using God's gifts in order to make the gospel visible. I want to talk to you about the church this morning because I think there's not only disregard to it, I think there's confusion as to it. In fact, the third reason I want to talk to you about the church this morning is after being here for a year, I think this is perhaps an area in which Hamilton Baptist Church can grow. I think there is room for us to improve. I think we struggle in being the church. Does that mean we're a terrible church? Absolutely not. I think God is doing wonderful, incredible things through this church. In fact, this last month, you gave almost $39,000. Not so that it can terminate on us, but so that it can leave this campus and leave this body and push back the darkness in foreign lands. You sacrifice for the work of the gospel. I think it's an incredible testimony to what God is doing in our life. No, this is not a terrible church by any means. And, and some people, I'm afraid, have a tendency to see the areas in which we are weak and miss the hundreds of things in which God is doing and producing in our life. And let that not be said of us. But nevertheless, let us recognize that there are weaknesses in our church and there is room for us to grow. And so I want to, if you will, just simply express my heart to you this morning and my hope and my dreams for Hamilton Baptist Church. I want to uh, explain to you the direction that I hope we go in 2014 and the years to come that, that we would become the church. Now, many people have experienced the power and the ministry of the church in, in your lives. And certainly my family has. We've been here for a year and, and the love that we've uh, received the gifts in which you have just used for our benefit has been overwhelming. We are completely blessed. But I am very well aware that there are some people that have not received that ministry in their life in our church. There are people here, even in this room today, that feel isolated and unconnected with this body. We've had people this last year leave our congregation and go to a much larger church, by the way, because they feel alone here. And I want to suggest to you that Scripture never presents the church in that way. 
It is not a place to be alone. There's a place where there are deep and robust and meaningful relationships intertwined in our life that we are using the, the mercy-giving gifts of God in each other's life to build each other up, to make disciples for the glory of God and the expanse of his kingdom. And so this is where I hope to go this year. In fact, you notice some of the instructions given to the church. Look down there in verse 9. He says, let love be genuine and abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good and love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Look at verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Or verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And in fact, in in, uh, Romans uh, 12, I've counted 25 different commands and exhortations and encouragements for how the church is to treat each other. But these commands and exhortations don't come out of anywhere. They're just not in a vacuum out of the blue. God just doesn't say, okay, live this way. It's all built upon a context, upon a foundation. In fact, look back in verse 1 of Romans 12 when the apostle says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, here it is, by the mercies of God, by the mercies of God, live this way. Because of what you have received from God because of the mercies in which God has given you, live this way. In fact, what Paul has been doing from Romans 1 all the way through Romans 11 is perhaps the greatest explanation of the mercies of God have been poured out upon us. And in chapter 1, 1 through 3, he begins to explain the sin in our life and how we rebelled against God in various ways and how God is opposed to sin and sinners. And he just diagnoses the cancer in us. And then he gets to the end of chapter 3 and perhaps the, when the great his paragraphs ever penned and he says all that wrath that God has against sin and sinners has not been poured out upon you Christian but has been poured upon Jesus Christ when he died upon the cross and there he took all the wrath upon us and then he gets to chapter 4 and he says and if you trust in Christ you will have uh, all of God's forgiveness and you will be invited into his family if you have that faith and if you have that faith we get to chapter 5 he says you now have peace with God and that peace will extend for eternity in fact the relationship even abounds where we get to chapter 6 and he says you not only have peace with God but you now have victory over sin and you're no longer in bondage to sin you've been set free but then chapter 7 says but we still struggle with sin don't think we're perfect yet we still fight that sin and it's still in us but then we get to chapter 8 and say well even though you fight in sin in chapter 8 verse 1 tells us there's therefore now let no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and nothing nothing not even your own sin will separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, and then from chapters 9 through chapter 11, he says this mercy of God is extending to all people, and it's just not confined to an ethnic people, but it is going out throughout the world. And then he comes to chapter 12, and he says, because of that, because of God's mercy, live this way. Worship this way. Treat one another this way. Submit to your government this way. Deal with your enemies this way. Handle weak brothers in the faith this way. Have a mercy-molded church. Have a mercy-molded marriage and a mercy-molded family and a mercy-molded work. Let it impact you. And so today I want to consider what this mercy-molded, this mercy-made, this mercy-moved church looks like. 
But what, what happens when God's mercy becomes the foundation of our relationships? Because I think we're confused because we think the mercy and grace of God is to terminate on us and we just want to get as much of it as we can and we hold on to it. Mercy, please. Mercy and mercy. And we just say, I want mercy. But the reality is that the mercy of God was never intended to just end with you. It was intended to flow through you into other people's lives. And so I wonder if you, Christian, have taken all the mercy of God. But the question I want to know, has that changed you? Do you treat other people differently because of the mercy in which you have received from God? To change how you relate to the church and how you work and how you treat your wife and husband and children. He begins to paint what mercy molded relationships look like. We experience the mercy of God personally so we can share it corporately with one another. And he tells us the church is to do this, I think, at least in these verses, in three ways. The self-forgetful body of Christ, the united body of Christ, and the active body of Christ. I think Paul says we are to be self-forgetful, a self-forgetful body of Christ... I gather this from verse 3. I think verse 3 is an incredible verse. It teaches much more than I'm about to say, but at the very least it teaches that we are to be self-forgetful. For by the grace given to me, he says, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. He says the mercy-molded individual, the mercy-molded mind does not think too highly of himself. He thinks of himself soberly. He's not always thinking of himself. That makes sense, doesn't it? Because if you stood before a judge and you were guilty of a, a tremendous crime and, and, and you knew you were guilty and the judge even said you were guilty and said, even though you're guilty, I'm letting you off. You may go free. You may walk out of this courtroom a free man or a woman. You would not leave that courtroom thinking, well, aren't I something? No, you would leave that courtroom amazed at the mercy of God. Or the mercy of the judge. You want to be built up. You be humbled and very appreciative of the mercy in which you have received. Well, how much more for us who have stood before the holy bar of God, unreconciled to him and in rebellion. And he says, because of the death and resurrection of my son, I forgive all of your sins. You may go. And by the way, before you go, I like to know I've adopted you into my family. And you are an heir of the world that one day will be remade. And my son will make sure everything that befalls your life will ultimately work out for your good. You wouldn't leave that courtroom thinking, aren't I great? No, you would say, that is the most gracious, merciful judge ever. It wouldn't make you feel highly of yourself at all. And so the mercy of God is to help us to think soberly of ourselves. We see this with Paul. You notice that in verse in the very beginning, he says, "For the, by, by the grace given to me, he's referring to his ministry and his gifts, not his salvation, uh, that, that God has graced me. And Paul's not boasted. Uh, he's not saying, look at me, I'm writing scripture. Look at me, I'm planting churches. Look at me, I'm, I'm the chief of the apostles, if you will. He says, all grace. God's given me grace. I, I don't deserve it. These aren't my gifts. These aren't my skills. Don't praise me. Praise God. And the same is true for you. For you note in verse 6, very similar to the beginning of verse 3, having gifts that differ according what? To the grace given to us. So Paul says in verse 3, grace has been given to me. And then he says in verse 6, oh, by the way, you too have been given grace in these gifts that God has given, in these skills. God's blessed you with gifts. Do not boast in them. Find them rather a greater occasion for humility and self-forgetfulness. It's by grace. Sometimes after I I preach, I I stand uh, by those doors and and shake hands and give hugs and high fives on, on the way out. And uh, to be honest, I've, I'm somewhat uncomfortable to do that. I do that maybe once a month um, because I know many people are blessed by that. But the reason I'm uncomfortable is I see some of your faces and you're thinking, okay, 
I got to think of something nice to say to the pastor, right? And sometimes you have to think pretty hard, don't you? Um, And you're thinking, okay, you know, well, there he is. And I I have to say something. And, and, and you all are, are, are very gracious. And and you tell me that, you know, I said something that provoked you or, or made you think and blessed you or really helped you understand something or, and so you all have very, very kind words and affirming words for me. And, and I always, and some of you comment, I feel kind of, you say, Stephen, you look kind of awkward when we, when we say these things about you. And I am awkward. I don't know what to say, to be honest. I, I kind of want to say, well, it's all of God. Um, but there's been plenty of times I've preached a sermon where God doesn't want any credit for that. Right? All right. God says, no, you could have the credit for that one. Okay. <laughs> you know, leave me out of this. Um, and so I, I don't, I don't want, but you know, I, I want it, God, God's word. I, what I usually say, God's word is rich and deep and beautiful and, and, and we ought to praise him for it. But the reality is, is if, if anything is ever said from this pulpit, whether it be me or another man, it is simply because God is gracious to me and to you. His grace, Paul says, he says, I'm, I'm therefore, we ought to not think highly of ourselves. We ought not to, we ought to think with sober judgment of ourselves. We ought not ought not to always be preoccupied with ourselves. And I think this is what's plaguing the American church is that, is that we think church is about me. We, it seems to me when I read the Bible that, that God explains that my time and my resources and energy are not to center and terminate upon me, but to be used for others in order to glorify God. And Somehow we begin, we've begun to think, well, no, my time and energy and resources are to end on me, or they're meet my needs, they're for me. This seems very American to me. It seems like the American way. And, and we've bought into this self-centered, individualistic mentality. And what's happened is that we've then designed churches in order to cater to this self-centered, individualistic um, pursuit of my own needs. And so we drive to a church service with all these expectations. And I, I hope there's a good parking lot. And I, I hope the children's ministry is easy to drop off. And I hope the music is appealing to me. And I hope the, the sermon is, is, is inner entertaining to me and I, I hope it's not too crowded and I hope it's not too hot or, or too cold and I, I hope we get out on time which is somewhat an elusive hope in this place but uh, we, you know we we have all these hopes and expe- you know in fact it would be really nice if I walked in this building and someone handed me a latte uh, that, I think that in fact a peppermint mocha would really enhance my worship experience and so if I could just get a peppermint mocha as I come in you know wouldn't that be great and I want to pick up my kids and I want them to tell me they had the best time of their life today and then I know Oh, well, this church is for me. You know, I want to be uplifted and encouraged. I want to be positive and encouraging. I want to have my best life now. This is the mentality that we have. I don't want to be challenged. This is why so much preaching is disguised. It's just, it's just Christian therapy. It's, it's all about how to have the victorious life and very often you hear anyone in the pulpit these days in our land call us to the mission of God that it is not about you. This church is not about you. And it's not about me. We are called together not to just say, what can I get out of this? Like we're going to wring it like a sponge. Bless me, bless me, bless me. We ought to think soberly of ourselves. You think you ever hear Paul think, well, I'm pulling up to Ephesus. I hope there's a latte waiting for me. <laughs> you, I don't, I don't, these ideas, you know, am, am I, am I going to enjoy the sermon? Is the music going to be the kind of music I like? 
though that, that idea never entered the mind of a single Christian for probably a thousand years. It just never even occurred to them. And it probably never, doesn't occur to the vast majority of Christianity throughout this world. But it certainly occurs to us. And this is how we come. And I just wonder if our attempts to cater to these needs, and I think they're good attempts to, to build up the body of Christ perhaps, but in the very attempt to grow the church, we are undercutting the very foundations of what God meant the church to be. Self-forgetful people who are molded by mercy and pouring our lives into one another. You know, we, we do realize we, we are a community to, that worships a guy who said, I did not come to be served. I didn't come to get a latte or a peppermint mocha. I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. We have, we worship, we center our life around one who died for his enemies. How then can we represent him if all we are is focusing on what I want rather than how I can bless you? how I can serve you. And be self-forgetful. It's not about me. It's, it's about us. It's about a united body in Christ. As we see, secondly, that the body of Christ is to be united. Note verse 4. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So you, you have one body and many parts of your body of hands and feet and eyes and, and ears, and they're all different. And then he draws that parallel, verse 5. So we, the church, though many, are one body in Christ. So we, we're many and we're very different, but we're all united together for one goal, to make disciples for the glory of God. The Bible says in Colossians 3.15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. We're one body, and not just anybody, but one body in Christ. I abide in Christ and you abide in Christ, and therefore we are united together. Christ is my older brother, God is my father, and therefore you are my brother and sister. We are united together in this family, in this body. But it's even more than that. If you read on in verse 5, he says, and individually members of one another. It's more profound than the fact that we just belong to the same body. We actually belong to each other. Individually members of each other, he says. I belong to you. I'm part of you once we are in the church and you are part of me. I'm like your foot or your eye and you're like my hand or my, my ears. We belong to each other. And we see this in the body. If I'm going through the night and I step on a Lego in the middle of the night and, and my, my foot's going to lift and my hand's going to instinctively go for that, my whole body responds. When my son throws a ninja star at me, I, I'm going to, my muscle's going to contract and my back's going to make this ducking motion and my, I'm going to, he's going to miss me my hand's going to shoot out and my mouth's going to taunt him. And right, it's all just kind of happens instinctively. It just, just happens. It's all working together. It's all part of together. It's immediate. If one part feels pain, it all feels pain. If one part feels pleasure, it all feels pleasure. As he says in verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We are members of each other. We're attached to each other. Let that sink in. As you consider the people in this room, they are members of you, and you are members of them. You are united together with them. That's what it says, individually members of one another. And if we are members of one another, members of the same body, we see that lastly. And we are gifted. The body's to be active. We're to be active body of Christ. As we see in verse 6, that we have gifts, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. The Bible here in Romans twelve six and many other passages say that every member of Christ is gifted by the Holy Spirit. It's not necessarily reference to skill or ability that come naturally to you, but Scripture teaches us that when you become when you uh, are 
are a Christ follower, you have the Spirit living in you, and the Spirit comes, and among the many things that He does, He actually gives you what we call spiritual gifts. We call them spiritual gifts not because they're, they're just spiritual, but they come from the Spirit. And you, if you are a Christ follower, have been gifted supernaturally by the, the Spirit of God. It is as he see, we see here in verse 6, by His grace that we have been gifted. And we have, according to verse 6, different gifts, don't we? Having gifts that differ, he says. So we're not all gifted the same way, which makes sense if we're a body, that we all can do different things. That, that the giftedness is going to determine on how we serve the body and how we manifest activity in the body. My hand serves me differently than my mouth serves me or my eye serves me. My hand is different, is gifted differently than my ear is gifted, right? And so that's what he says here. He begins to list these gifts, doesn't he? He talks about prophecy and teaching and exhortation and generosity and leadership and, and mercy. And, and he says some people are tender hearted and they have this mercy and some are just lavishly generous and they have this gift of giving and some, some are forceful and bold and they have a gift of exhortation. And the point is that we don't rank these gifts. We don't think, well, I, I like the gifts of my hand better than the gifts of my ear. No, there's no, they're not, Contestants, we're not competing against each other. We're serving one another. We're working together in order to bless each other. Each part gifted, but each part belonging to the body of Christ. All coming together, making making the body of Christ. When John MacArthur uh, wrote his commentary on, on Romans, he he quoted from Dr. Paul Brand. Maybe some of you have read that book that he wrote, uh, fearfully and wonderfully made. It is a, just a wonderful, uh, incredible book. I highly recommend it. But this is what Dr. Brand says, who spent most of his time life studying nerve cells. He says, chemically, my cells are almost alike, but visually and functionally, they are as different as animals in a zoo. Red blood cells, discs resembling lifesaver candies, voyage through my blood loaded with oxygen to feed other cells. Muscle cells, which absorb so much of that nourishment, are sleek and supple, full of coiled energy. Cartilage cells with shiny black nuclei look like bunches of black-eyed peas glued together for strength. Fat cells seem lazy and leaden, like bulging white plastic garbage bags jammed together. Bone cells live in rigid structures that exude strength. Cut in cross-sections, bones resemble tree rings, overlapping strength with strength, offering impliability and sturdiness. In contrast, skin cells form undulating patterns of softness and texture that rise and dip, giving shape and beauty to our bodies. They curve and jut at unpredictable angles, and every person's fingerprint, not to mention his or her face, is unique. But the king of the cells, he says, the one I devoted much of my life studying, is the nerve cell. It has an aura of wisdom and complexity about it. Spider-like, it branches out and unites the body with a computer network of dazzling sophistication. Individually, they seem puny and oddly designed, but I know these invisible parts cooperate to lavish me with a phenomenon of life. But here's the point. My body employs a bewildering zoo of cells, none of which individually resembles the larger body. Just so, Christ's body comprises an unlikely assortment of humans. Unlikely is precisely the right term, for we are decidedly unlike one another. The body of Christ, like our own bodies, is composed of individual, unlike cells that are knit together to form one body. The joy of that body increases as individual cells realize they can be diverse without becoming isolated. You are gifted by God to serve the body of Christ. 
You are part of that body. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 12, God has arranged these, the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. I think you would do well to let that sink in a little bit. And I'm gifted for one another. I mean, what if God actually knew what he was doing when he brought each of us together to be this community of faith? And what, what if God knew what he was doing when he gifted you with the Holy Spirit with certain gifts that I certainly don't have in order that we might be part of this community of faith? What if the, the picture of this community of faith is to be a tapestry of grace where each of us brings the gifts in which God has given us by grace to the table to accomplish one grand mission for God's glory and fame? We're gifted. In fact, he, he tells us because we're gifted, we're to do what? Do you see that in the middle of verse 6? Let us use them. Right? When you give someone a gift, they're, they're to use them. But who are they to use them for? Well, each other. He says, if prophecy in proportion of our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in his generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. You notice that each of these gifts have a receiver. Right? The gift is done not for the benefit of the individual, but for the benefit of someone who receives it. So if I have the gift of serving, then there's someone who needs to be served. If I have the gift of teaching, there's someone who needs to learn. Or, or if you have the gift of leadership, there's someone that needs to follow. All these gifts are designed not to terminate on ourselves, but actually to be exercised in the body. It actually, God has gifted in a way that brings us together rather than separates us. We're gifted for the body. And if all we think about is me, 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 I want my latte and I want the music the way I want, you undercut the very point of the giftedness of Christians to be brought together. It's not about us. It's how can I bless each other? It's this mercy molded, self-lavish, this lavish self-forgetfulness into other people's lives. We are to be a channel of grace, the mercy of God given to us that we might extend it to another. So use your gifts. Do, do you use your gifts? Are you serving the body? The Bible says in Peter, as each one of you has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of God's manifold grace. You know what happens when you eat a lot and don't exercise? If all you do is sit and receive, but no activity, some of us know, right? This is, this is what Christianity in America seems to have been boiled down to. Just come and receive. Just come and receive. When God says, no, it's, it's, I've gifted you in order that you might serve one another. A, a people who are accomplishing the purposes for which God created us to be a, a community of faith. And so I think we often don't use them because we're confused as to what churches have already said. If we think that this hour and a half is church, then, then most of us will not be using our gifts. Very few of us will be doing the, the, the service to one another. And, and most of you will just be relegated to sitting and to, to receiving. But if we stop to thinking about something, church is something we attend and the church is something we are, as the, the Bible presents it, we can begin to be active in each other's life. And, and when you see how, how this is to take place here in verse nine, it says, let love be genuine. That is, we're to love each other without, without hypocrisy. Stop worrying about what we look like. Because it's so easy to learn the, the Christianese and how I'm supposed to act and how I'm supposed 
supposed to behave and what sins I'm supposed to be quiet about because even though I'm struggling with them, you're going to think I'm strange if I actually tell you that. And we put these masks on. And Paul says, you ought not to have that mask. It ought to be a community of authenticity and mutual love. And we ought to be able to have a safe place to say, you know, I'm really struggling with envy or I'm really doubting God in, in my finances right now. And we ought to be able to, to love each other in that way. But even when we confess sin, you see what he says? He says, whore what is evil. So it's a safe place for you to tell me about your sin. But if the sin is unrepented, it's not safe for that sin. We're going to oppose evil because we all know it's okay not to be okay. None of us are okay. We all are struggling. But it is not okay to stay that way. We have to move. And we are given each other that we might help each other move. Hold fast to what is good, he says at the end of verse 9. The Bible in Hebrews 10 verse 24 says, Let us consider how we might stir one another up towards righteousness and good works that we pour ourselves into each other's lives and push each other towards godliness and encourage them towards righteousness. In verse 10, he says, love one another with brotherly affection. He not only tells you what to do, he tells you what to feel. Have affection towards one another, he says. Outdo one another in showing honor. We are to prefer to honor than to be honored. We're to forget ourselves and look for what God is doing in each other's lives and then be able to point that out and say, that is wonderful. Praise God for what he is doing in your life. So many times people are students of what's wrong and they're blind to what God is doing and we're to honor each other. And there are people in this church and I've spoken to them who would tell me and tell you, I can't remember the last time someone honored me in this church. And I'm, I'm sorry for that because that's not what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be molded by the mercy of Christ and we begin to honor each other. Look at verse 11. He says, Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in in the Spirit. Serve the Lord. I once had a friend who was so on fire for God. He was memorizing scripture and he's reading the Bible and he's witnessing down on the beach and he was just flying after Jesus. You know what that did to me? Oh, it made me want that. I probably grew in my faith more in those days than I ever have. And the Bible gives us each other that would be fervent in the spirit on fire for the Lord. I need you to have Christ capture your heart to help me grow in Christ-likeness. We need each other, the Bible says, as we push each other forward. Verse 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, he says. Who are we praying for? I mean, really praying for, not just their sickness, but we know what's going on in their life and the struggles they're having. You know, Second Samuel chapter 12 says, far be it from me to sin against God by failing to pray for you. Far be it from me to sin against God by failing to pray for you. Look at verse 13. He says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Literally, it's pursue hospitality. Seek after hospitality. Look for needs in which you can meet and people that you can bless. This is what the church looks like. It doesn't look like an hour and a half gathering on Sunday mornings. It, this, this does not happen here Sunday mornings. It doesn't happen in choir practice. It doesn't happen most likely in your Sunday school. Maybe it does. What happens when we begin to share life together and we create a web of deep and meaningful relationships? But we've gotten to the point where we just program everything. We schedule church and we have buildings and committees and and they're all nice and, and needed, but we start to run the church like it's a company and not a body of relationships, of people united together. And I'm convinced, as I share, that Hamilton Baptist Church needs to grow in this area. We need to be released to become the church that God has gifted us to be.
And so this is where we're going to head, God willing. And I don't know how long it's going to take us. I hope in August, I think, to begin to speak to you about forming a small group or a community group ministry in this church where 10 to 14 people begin to meet together in each other's homes, not to study more scripture, but to actually take the sermon and the text and to begin to talk about it and apply it in each other's lives, thinking we heard the Bible. Now, what impact should that have in our lives as we begin to exercise the gifts in our lives? And these people would, 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 would show the world what a, what a body of Christ looks like and to have these groups scattered all, all over Loudoun County. In fact, uh, some of you, I, I know I've been dropping hints about this, and some of you people say, I don't want to wait. Some, in fact, there's a group starting up in, in late January in, in Berryville. And uh, if you don't want to wait, just email. We'll get things going, and, and we're going to have probably a more formal launch in, in the in this, uh, fall. And I, I look forward to seeing what this is going to look like as we share life together and pursue Christ together and come alive and be able to sh- build up the body together and to, to, to show the world what, what the body of Christ is supposed to look like. I also think that I would love to see people not just meeting together in, in these community groups, but meeting together maybe every other week, just one or two others saying, hey, do you want to read the Gospel of Mark together? Let's just get together every other week and we'll just read the Gospel of Mark or we'll read Colossians or we'll, or we'll read, read this book together. Maybe older people can disciple younger people. I think I've read that somewhere. Right? That people who are more mature can say, you know, we're not, we're not going to worry about programming it. You have to, we're going to actually begin to relate to each other and, and have these relationships. I, I would love to see this is the, that becomes the DNA of our church, that we're living lives together. And I know when pastors come up with these ideas and say, this is what we're going to do, and they, they have this raw, raw, and this is the new thing, and, and you all think, okay, the pastor's read a book. Right? He heard some innovative idea, and this is what the church down the road is doing, so we're going to... And I have read a book. It's called the Bible. And you know what Jesus did? He preached to large crowds. He spent 90% of his time with 12 people, and I think I could prove to you from Scripture that those 12 people were divided into four smaller groups who were probably spending time with each other, pursuing Christ to each other. This is what I think the church is supposed to look like. Of course, as we end this morning, the question that I have, and maybe you have, and I just want to address it, is why? What I mean by that is why does God design it that we need each other? Why not just have us all in love with Jesus, and I just have all the gifts I need, and I'm just going to pursue Christ by myself, and you pursue Christ by yourself, and we all pursue Christ by ourselves? Why, why, do, we, why do we need to be bound together? Well, look over in Romans chapter 15. You notice uh, Romans chapter 15, I think it answers this question, Why? In verse 5, it says, may the God of endurance, I, I love, I don't, I don't even know what that means to be honest, but I think it's great. May the God of endurance, maybe he endures with us, maybe that's what he's dealing with. May the God of endurance and encouragement do what? He's praying. May God, here's the request, grant you, plural, you all, to live in such harmony with one another. In, in accord with Christ Jesus. So I want God to unite you together in harmony with one mind, with one accord. Why, Paul, are you praying for this? That, verse 6, that together you all 
may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, he unites us together because God gets more glory when his people are actually loving each other with, than if we're just doing our own thing. If we're actually united together. Verse 7 is the same thing. Therefore, welcome one another, come together as Christ has welcomed you. Why? For the glory of God. People loving and serving and caring for each other as God has gifted them because they've been impacted by the mercy of God is going to bring God honor. When these different people come together and not living for ourselves, but living for, for the joy and the service of one another, for the fame of our King. There's a famous pastor who says the, the, um, the, the gladness of the family reflects the glory of the Father. Or the, the harmony of the family reflects the glory of a father. You ever just imagine a family. Maybe you've never seen one of these. Imagine a family where all the kids are just kind of serving each other and not thinking of themselves, but thinking how they can bless each other and just doing things spontaneously in order to serve and to love each other. And they're all just working together. No one's whining or complaining or thinking about me, me, me. But everybody's kind of thinking about everyone else. And what do you, you see a family like that? What would you think? Wow, those parents know what they're doing. The, the, glo- the gladness of the family reflects the glory of the Father. Well, the same is true for us. You see, the world can't see God, but they see us. They see us who say we belong to him and we follow him. And so Jesus would tell us by this, all men will know you are my disciples. If you have lattes in church, right? Or if you have fog machines or bunnies parachuting out of helicopters on Easter to bring people to church, is that, is that how they'll know you're my disciples? All men will know you're my disciples by... Your love for one another. He'll pray in John 17, Father, make them one so that the world may know that you have sent me. You see, when the world sees sons and daughters enjoying life together and building each other up and serving each other with radical and self-forgetful care, we reflect upon our Father and who he is. He's glorified, and not only is he glorified, but his kingdom abounds. This was the strategy of Jesus. This is his strategy. He says, I'm not going to worry about drawing a crowd. If they come, that's fine. But I'm going to focus on 12 guys. Those 12 guys made 120 and 120 made into thousands and then thousands and thousands and millions and millions. And now here we are in 2014 in Hamilton, Virginia, loving Jesus. Because Jesus started with a, a small people just living life together. 90% of his time. In fact, whenever momentum picked up and people started coming to Jesus, he would teach them hard and weird things. Wouldn't he? he would say, well, okay, well, if you want to follow me, you have to drink my blood or, or eat my body. Body. And people think, that is just weird and strange, and they leave, right? And, they, and he does it over and over. And you know the disciples are thinking, oh, no, not the drink your blood sermon again. And, and it's just, this is what he's just driving the waves, not interested in it. He's interested in seeing people actually begin to, to draw them together. And so we get to the book of Acts, and what happens? The church grows, but why? Because they have state-of-art youth ministries and nice parking lots? No, they're drawn to the church because of the church, the, the people. And they think, well, th- there's something going on there. And it becomes attractive. And I'm convinced that if Loudoun County would, would rather than having its needs catered and come to Hamilton, because we have the latest and greatest things, and we do this, and we're flashing, but they actually see people transformed by the mercy of God involved in each other's lives, they would begin to see who Christ is and say, I want that. That's what I want. And they would want Jesus because of Jesus' people. But if we build a church based upon fancy programs and meaning people, and please don't hear me, we're not, we're not getting rid of programs, but if that's our focus, the, the dying world will look at and say, you're no different than we are. You're just looking for your needs. You find it in church. I find it in my career or in sports or whatever it is. We're all just looking out for ourselves. We have a different story to tell. We are to be a different people. If Hamilton Baptist Church lived like the body of Christ, 
showed a different kind of love. Can you imagine a faith community not dependent just upon a few people serving you for an hour, but a church family where all of our gifts are being used into each other's life, not a people interested in being entertained or catered to, who don't need rock music and fog machines, not a people who need to be uplifted and encouraged and, and live their best life now and, and it's all about me, but people who would deny themselves and take up their cross. I've heard someone say that. Deny yourself and take up a cross. And actually live like that. Imagine a church captured by the mercy of God, gifted by the Spirit of God, in love with the Son of God, living like the body of God, living lives of lavish, self-forgetful love and service. I wonder what would happen. I want to see. That's what I'm going to pray for. This is the direction we're going to move to. I really covet your prayers, but I don't know how to do this. I don't. And I've told the elders over and over again, I don't know how to do this. This is what I think we need to do. I don't know how. So pray for us. We want the glory of God and the kingdom built. So pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for your body, that we have the great privilege and and honor to become. We thank you for this body and the thousands of things you are doing in our lives and in us together and things that we can't even see or understand or appreciate. Though there are many that we can rejoice and see, we know that you are working here. And yet we want more. We want more. And so will you guide us and lead us? Will you help us? We thank you for the gifts in which you've given us. Will you help us to use them? Make us into the people you want us to be for your fame and for your kingdom's sake. I pray for my friend here this morning that perhaps just walked here and does not know Jesus and hearing all of this about the body of Christ. And I just pray, Father, that you would help them understand that the body comes after Christ and that they would know that there is salvation and forgiveness of all their sin found in faith and love to Jesus Christ who died for them and took all their sin upon him and rose three days later from the grave. Will you help them to trust in Jesus? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.